currently in the heart of a sermon series entitled The Nine Virtues, um, the purpose of which is to take a look at what it means to cultivate the character of Jesus. And so from day one of this series, uh, I've made the the clear booming declaration that uh, we unashamedly believe that salvation comes not by character cultivation, but rather uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. And yet, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. That from every gospel root comes gospel fruit, you could say. Put that on a bumper sticker. Um, but, but what does that mean? What does it mean to cultivate the character of Jesus? What does it mean to to walk in step, to keep in step with the Spirit of God based on the way the Apostle Paul unpacks this idea of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you weren't around for week one of this series, I would encourage you this week to go back and and go online and listen to that sermon via podcast. You'll get a a really helpful framing, I think, of of where we're going throughout the course of this series. But to, to sum it all up, the best way I can in just a matter of 60 seconds or less. Um, Walking by the Spirit comes by trusting the Holy Spirit to to see the work to its completion. So first and foremost, there's a depending upon, there's a trusting in the third person of the Trinity, the the Spirit of God. But it's not a passive dependence. That as we acknowledge uh, our dependence upon the Spirit, we abide in Jesus. We fix our gaze upon Him. We, we spend time with him. We pound the nail a little deeper into the sinful nature, helping it toward its final breath. And lastly, we walk in step with the Spirit's leading through the ordinary means of God's grace. So time in the scriptures, time spent in prayer, time brushing shoulders with other people who love and follow Jesus, time spent preaching the gospel to yourself, and so forth and so on. The, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace. So we've taken a look at the virtues of love and joy thus far. This week we'll take a look at a passage on peace. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 4 through 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats underneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. We're excited for you to own a Bible if you came in not the proud owner of the scriptures. So uh, let me do this. Let me this morning read the passage in its fullness and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll get to work. Paul says this, Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let me pray for us. God, my guess would be that a great number of people who fill this room, myself included, uh, even in the past few days have experienced anxiety with respect to some sort of situation, some sort of circumstance that's reared its head in our lives. Um, we, we've experienced, perhaps been consumed by, engulfed with 
worry. And so uh, this morning's text is very timely for uh, a mass majority, I would guess, of people who fill this room right now as we speak. And so I pray that your peace would consume, would engulf worry and anxiety, that you would help us to see what you're calling us to so that we might experience these great promises uh, that are found in this particular passage of Scripture. I pray by the power of the Spirit of God that as we leave this place, that we would be a people who would experience uh, the peace of God and the God of peace. What a beautiful package deal that you offer us by the, by the very gospel rooted in our lives. We love you. We lift these things up to you by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. So probably helpful to start with a, a question this morning, which is this. What is it that makes you anxious? What, what is it that consumes your thoughts in moments of unsettledness? For some of us, it's our children. For others of us, it's finances. Perhaps it's your marriage. Maybe your health. Maybe your career, the path that you're on, where that's going. The, the Philippian church was anxious about a number of things, as Paul writes to them. Um, namely, Paul's imprisonment. Uh, persecution from outside the church that these guys were experiencing, bickering on the inside among church members. My guess is that many of us in this room have gone to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 in moments of anxiety. You might even have those verses plastered on a coffee cup somewhere in your kitchen, maybe framed on a wall somewhere in your house. That's very possible, and rightly so. It's an incredible promise, as we'll see uh, in just a moment. But... Strangely, it's a promise that's preceded by practical action items that set the stage for us to experience the very promise itself. And so for those of you who love practical application, those who say, man, give me some things I can walk out of here implementing in my life that will help me along the way, you're going to love this passage. Um, oftentimes, the, the church is fearful of practical application we, we get this idea in our minds that, well, people are just going to abuse that. They're just going to use that to attempt to leverage themselves before the God of the universe to try to find favor with him. They're going to treat it uh, as some moralistic tool so that they can then impress God. And I said it before and I'll say it again. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And yet... God does teach us to walk in his statutes, that to be a gospel-centered church is not to set aside obedience. It's not that we believe that we walk in the statutes of God in a you-can-save-yourself kind of way, but rather in a this-is-the-way-that-God's-designed-the-world-to-work kind of way. And so strangely, God has determined that there's a way to experience his peace that surpasses understanding. You can't just go... Uh, God, I want that promise for my life and sit passively on the sidelines and expect to experience it. That he's ordained the means by which you can experience the peace described in verse 7. It's kind of like if you want a nail driven into a piece of wood, some of you have heard this example before, you don't just hold the nail up to the piece of wood and wait for it to burrow its way in. Right? God has ordained that hammers be the means by which nails go into pieces of wood. And in the same way that God has ordained that hammers be the means by which nails go into pieces of wood, in the same way that God has ordained that prayer be the means by which his decreed will comes to pass, so God has ordained that there's a means by which we can experience all that verse 7 uh, promises us. And so Paul unpacks that in verses 4 through, through 6. 
uh, three things that, that we can be about, that we can implement in our lives that will bring about this promise uh, in its fullness in verse 7. The first of those, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And, and so verse 4, right off the bat, is a helpful reminder that uh, the, the nine virtues listed in Galatians 5 that make up the fruit of the Spirit, those virtues are not divorced from one another. That part of experiencing true peace comes as, as we, going back to last week, fight to be happy in God. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And, and again, it's not a manufacturing of, of feelings. Sorrow is real. Hurt is real. Pain is real. But in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the, of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, we fight by the power of the Spirit to be happy in God. Though the Christian's joy may be tested, it can never be fully extinguished by sorrow or circumstance. I shared this quote last week, and it's so good I'll share it again. Charles Spurgeon says this, Our joy no man takes from us. We are singing pilgrims, though the way be rough. Amid the ashes of our pain live the sparks of our joys, ready to flame up when the breath of the Spirit sweetly blows. Our latent happiness is a choicer heritage than the sinner's riotous glee, he says. I mean, remember who's making this declaration in the first place. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's not a health and wealth dude, is he? He's experiencing great persecution in this moment. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's anticipating a possible martyrdom experience. And yet he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That an imprisoned follower of Jesus anticipating possible martyrdom says, here's how you defeat anxiety. It's by fighting by the Spirit to be happy in God. That that peace comes as we, going back to last week, fight to see Jesus as the supremely valuable treasure hidden in a field. That peace comes as we see his supreme worth that causes everything else that we hold dear to uh, to pale in comparison. That worry subsides, anxiety subsides as we soak in the truth that Jesus is our gain. That everything else can be stripped away from us, but not Jesus. He's ours forever. Verse 5. Paul gives a second means by which we can experience the promise of verse 7. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That, that word reasonable um, can also be translated gentle. So again, we see the, the bleeding of one virtue uh, into another in the Galatians 5 list. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Paul's talking about this idea of being measured in our responses to others. Not lashing out at others in the midst of our anxiety. Even when they contribute to our anxiety. Treating others the way you'd want to be treating them if Jesus were to return at any moment. Paul says the Lord is at hand. Let that drive the way that you respond in those moments of anxiety. I mean the reality is that treating others harshly in the midst of our anxiety does nothing to diffuse the anxiety in the first place, does it? I mean typically it ramps it up a notch. I know when, when my wife and I uh, are in moments of worry we, we're very good at lashing out at one another, at becoming hostile toward one another. And I can promise you that uh, every time we do that, it doesn't make the situation any better. It doesn't reduce the anxiety when we respond in that way. It's very Proverbs-like, verse 5, what Paul's saying. You can almost put it into a fortune cookie, right? The way of wisdom as it pertains to peace is to be peaceable with others. And then lastly, verse 6 
The third means by which we can experience the promise of verse 7 is is this. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So you have this negative command in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't let anxiety consume you. He doesn't say don't be anxious because there's nothing to be anxious about. Rather, he says, don't be anxious because God's on the throne and is in full control of his universe and he deeply loves you. It's really strange to me, if you think about it. Worry is one of those things, it's like we get in our minds that if we just don't stop thinking about the situation, if we continue to fix our minds on it, we can somehow manipulate it you know, with our minds into the circumstances changing. But, but if we stop worrying about it, then all of a sudden we've relinquished control of the situation that we never had control of in the first place. It's really weird, isn't it? The fact that you're fully in control is an illusion. God is seated on his throne. He's in control. So how crazy is it when, when we spend so much time worrying about things that we can't control when we could very easily be spending that time on our knees praying to the one who is seated on his throne crown on his head, scepter in hand, in control of his universe in every situation that plays out in it. And so Paul says, instead of worrying about the things you can't control, the positive command in verse 6, the antidote to anxiety, really simple, easy Sunday school fill in the blank. Prayer. If you're a chronic worrier, the likelihood is that you could stand to carve out a little bit more time for prayer. It's a good check engine light. If, you, if you're a chronic worrier, if you're a person who experiences chronic anxiety, there's probably a likelihood that there's an absence of prayer in your life. I mean, the reality is we all could stand to be more of a people of prayer, right? Listen to these beautiful verses. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. New Testament, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What if we took all that time that we spend worrying, breathing the air of anxiety, and what if we dedicated that time to lifting those things up to the Lord in prayer? And then walking away thankful, as Paul says, with thanksgiving, uh, regardless of how God decides to answer that prayer. Because we know that no matter how he responds, he's, he's both sovereign and good. He's in control and he loves us deeply. Even if we don't have our prayers answered the way that we want God to answer them. Trusting that he knows what's best, that he knows better than we do. Trusting that he loves us and he'll do whatever it takes to draw us to himself and to conform us into the image of his son. Many of you are familiar with the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. One of the lines of that song is, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, be peaceable with others, and spend your time praying rather than worrying. Commit yourself to these things found in verses 4 through 6. Verse 7, and the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, that As we rejoice in the Lord, 
as we fight to fix our eyes upon Jesus as our supremely valuable treasure, as we temper our responses to others in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anxiety, as we cast our anxieties on the Lord in prayer, verse 7 tells us as we keep in step with the Spirit in these very practical, very pragmatic ways, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing promise. Did you know that the word guard in verse 7, it's a military word, like the guarding of a fortress against enemy attack. And so God promises to protect us from turbulence, from anxiety, from despair that would engulf us, that would consume us otherwise. Notice that Paul's very words here assume that Every prayer is not going to be answered according to our will. I mean, you don't need your heart and mind guarded if all your prayers are being answered the way you think they should, do you? That doesn't require a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that surpasses all understanding is one that carries you through the worst of storms, still trusting in Jesus. We have an online cohort every week. We share thoughts amongst our congregations about the upcoming sermon, passage of scripture that we're looking at, um, and one of the guys uh, in that particular cohort this week, uh, he, he shared a couple of screenshots of a, of a commentary that he had been reading this week, and uh, one of the things that he underlined in that commentary, let me just read this for you, it says, we are not really convinced that the same Jesus who can keep a sparrow in the air knows where our lost luggage is. Or how we are going to pay that car repair bill. Or how we can get to our destination on time. We let Satan sow seeds of doubt in our minds about his love and care for us. And I do think that's true. But I think it goes a step further than that. Because I think what Paul's calling us to is a trusting in the Lord even when our luggage remains lost. Even when the, the money doesn't magically show up in the mailbox one day for the exact dollar and penny amount that we can declare, man, the Lord provided. And he does that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But, but there's a, this sermon is not come to God in prayer and he'll respond better to what you're asking him to do as you remain seated on the throne. That's not what Paul's driving at. He's driving at a, a steadiness, a, a consistency, when God responds in ways that are very antithetical to what we would do if we were the God of the universe and still trusting that he loves us and that he's for us and that all that he is bringing us through in life is so that we might depend on him more, we might love him more, we might trust him more, and we might be conformed more and more into his very image. Some of you know what Paul's talking about. You, you found yourself in, in situations where you go, I should be despairing right now. That's what would make sense. I should be consumed with anxiety right now. And yet by God's grace, you find yourself steady. You find yourself unshakable. You find yourself trusting such that maybe in those moments you've even said, I, I can't explain it. I should be freaking out right now. Here's the crazy thing. You can explain it. Verse 7. Verse 7 is the explanation. It's the peace of God guarding your heart and mind like a soldier guards the castle in the midst of war. That here's what God promises. Verses 4 through 6. As you fight to be happy in God, to see Jesus as supremely valuable, as you temper the way you respond to others in the midst of hardship, as you cast your anxieties on the Lord in prayer rather than worry, 
God says this, verse 7. I'll go to war for you. I will bludgeon the enemy of anxiety for you. I will crucify the enemy of worry for you. What an incredible promise. It's a promise that we oftentimes miss out on because we, rather than rejoice in the Lord, verse 4, we choose to believe in those moments that lesser things are supremely valuable. We choose to leave those things on the throne and grieve when, when they can't remain seated in their rightful place as supreme in our lives, when they're stripped from us. We miss out on the promise of verse 7 because rather than functioning in a way that we're reasonable with other people, gentle with other people, we react harshly toward others in those moments. We miss out on the promise of verse 7 because uh, rather than uh, falling to our knees in prayer, we choose to spend our time worrying, trying to manipulate the situation as if we sit on the throne and if we think about it enough, we can muster up a different circumstance. Notice that according to the Apostle Paul, This kind of peace of God can only be experienced by those who are at peace with God. He describes it, verse 7, as a peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? That's critical. This is a promise for those who are united to Christ. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says it this way, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, heaven, uh, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The peace of God, verse 7, is a gift to those who are at peace with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's another way that we could, we could probably say it. The peace of God comes in trusting that God is enthroned and is in control of all things. If you're the king or queen of your own kingdom, you can only look to you. I've said this before. When, when you became a Christian, the Spirit of God busted down the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank, headed for the castle, made a beeline for the throne and promptly executed you so that Jesus could take his rightful place as king. And that's good news because when anxiety comes a knocking, you don't have to go, all right, self, you're the king here. Fix this anxiety problem, won't you? You get to cast your cares on another, namely King Jesus, who's far more qualified to handle your cares than you are. And the beauty is he invites you to approach his throne at any time. Hebrews 4 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The peace of God is promised to the Christian who will choose to believe in those moments of anxiety that lesser things are lesser things and who will react with gentleness toward others in those moments of worry, and who will spend his or her time not worrying about things that he or she can't control, but drawing near to the throne of grace in prayer. And then Paul says, verse 8, Finally, brothers. Okay, so you might be inclined to go, well, that's enough for a sermon. But Paul says, I've got something better, actually, than verse 7. He's going to do it a second time. He's going to say, I've got another promise for you guys. 
And it makes the promise in verse 7, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, seem like child's play. This is the one that should really be written on the coffee mug. This is the one that should be framed. It's verse 9. In verse 7, it was the peace of God. Here in verse 9, if you skip ahead, he says, the God of peace will be with you. That's crazy. It's not, it's not just that you get the peace of God that engulfs your worry or anxiety, but you get the nearness of the God of peace himself walking with you through it all. The good news about this passage is we don't have to choose. You can have both. In fact, I'd say it this way. If you want the peace of God, but you don't want the God of peace, you won't get either of them. It's a package deal. Paul's made clear in verses 4 through 6 of how we experience the peace of God. And now in verses 8 and 9, he's going to show us the means by which we experience the nearness of God. The presence of God. He says this. He says, whatever is true, brothers, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, so Christianity is a thinking faith. Many people cringe at the very word theology. They think it's the, uh, the fierce opponent of faith, a practice reserved for academics and intellectuals. But the very word theology simply means this, a word about God or something said about God. And so the reality is everyone in this room is a theologian because all of you have something to say about God. Even the atheist is a theologian because he or she has something to say about God, namely that God doesn't exist. So the question is not whether you're a theologian or not. The question is, are you practicing good theology or bad theology? The Bible is filled with numerous passages that give attention to the importance of thinking to the glory of God. Let me just share a few of them with you. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. The Greek word for mind there means understanding or thought. This is the great and first commandment, Jesus says. Paul in Colossians 3 says it this way. Set your minds on. Think about. Have your mind controlled by things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says it this way. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, in your understanding. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, in your understanding, be mature. We're not talking about sitting in a proverbial ivory tower all day long reading systematic theology books and turning into theological bobbleheads who have no affection for God and who have no desire to put hands and feet to the things that they say that they believe. Rather, we're talking about an awakening of our minds to the glory and wonder of God in such a way that our affections are stirred and it moves us to be a people of action. God made us with a mind and we get to use it for his glory and our joy, which is really hard, isn't it? I mean, it's like we live in a world where there's a conspiracy uh, to keep people from turning their brains on. Right? There are probably more than a couple of ways that that happens that you can think of. I thought of two just off the top of my head, number one, the, the sheer pace of life makes it a real challenge to slow down and actually think about things that matter. 
things that have eternal significance. It's really easy in our fast-paced lives to go for days, sometimes even weeks, maybe even months, without fixing our eyes upon and our minds upon the things of God, without engaging verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. But not even just the pace, it's the content as well. Much of uh, what culturally gets put in front of our faces is trivial at best. You're, you're being constantly bombarded on any given day by trivial things. Be it on television, radio, your Facebook news feed. How many articles do you read just on your Facebook news feed alone that just don't matter? On and on we could go. And so the reality is this. If you don't have a battle plan for how you're going to think about things that are true, that are lovely, that are pure, that are honorable, that are commendable, that are just. If you don't have a battle plan for how you're going to implement verse 8, it's probably not going to happen for most of us. So let me ask you this question. What is it that practically awakens your mind to the things of God? And I'm getting very practical here. Perhaps for some of us, it's sitting with the scriptures and a good cup of coffee in that living room chair that you love. And you know the brand of coffee. It's like if I drink this coffee, my time with Jesus in the scriptures is just 10 times better. I don't know why it is that that particular brand. Spend more money. Get that brand of coffee. Even if you're crazy and you dream that up, whatever it takes. Maybe it's a certain place that you love to go where the pace slows down just a little Maybe it's here, a more consistent presence in the context of the church gathered. Maybe it's all of the above. Every one of us is different, so I think we have to think through how we're wired and what it looks like to to fight to have our minds awaken to the things of God. But the point is simply this. Whatever it is that practically awakens your mind to the things of God, absent of illegal drugs, do those things. Be purposeful. Be intentional. Be intentional. Verse 9, the promise of experiencing God's nearness is on the line. If you've ever thought, man, I just don't feel like God is near. I feel like he is millions of miles away, light years away from anything going on in my world. That's on the line. Verse 9, if you want to experience the God of peace near you, the nearness of God, Paul says, think on whatever is true. Think on whatever is honorable. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think on that which is excellent and worthy of praise. I really do think this goes back to what I addressed in the very first sermon of 2016. And if you weren't around then, you need to go back and listen to that one. That that sets the stage for everything that we're about as a church and where we're going. This idea of preaching the gospel to yourself that there's a massive difference between your confessional theology, what you declare to believe, what you can articulate, what you understand. There's a massive difference between your confessional theology and your battleground theology, that which forms your responses when life gets hard, when the battle for your soul ensues. And having good confessional theology, being able to fill in a good number of Sunday school blanks at an intellectual level is not enough. Our hearts have a tendency to drift from our confessional theology when things get hard. We begin to lend our ears to doubt, which creates a wedge between our mind and our heart, what we, what we say we believe and what we actually believe in the moment. We begin to doubt God's character. Is he really sovereign? Does he really love me? Is he really good? We doubt our identity in Christ. Am I really forgiven? 
Am I really loved by God? We lend our ears to anti-gospels motivated by fear, doubt, panic, bitterness, pride, and the list of culprits goes on and on. We can't help ourselves. We, we must converse with ourselves. As Paul Tripp says in his book, Dangerous Calling, many of you remember this quote. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. On any given day, you're going to preach something to yourself. You're going to declare something to yourself in those moments that unfold on any given day. The question is this, will it be gospel or will it be anti-gospel? There are a thousand different circumstances that can bring about a thousand different anti-gospels. And every one of them causes us to doubt the character of God, the promises of God, who God is for us in Christ. And so what Paul's saying is every time you think on that which is true, which is lovely, which is commendable, which is honorable, which is pure, which is just. Every time you think on these things, you arm yourself with one more weapon in your arsenal, one more arrow in your quiver to aim at your heart when it fails to buy into the things you say you believe at a mind level. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that as it pertains to anxiety. Some of us, if you're like me, you, you experience great anxiety when an unexpected expense hits you. So it has to do with finances. And, and all of a sudden, there, there's a moment where you can believe things that are false, that are unlovely, that are the antithesis of verse 8, which is God doesn't love me more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. What I have now and what I'm able to acquire now is all I'll ever have. It's right now, in the here and now. Get while the getting's good. And when you can't get, and when what you've got starts to disappear because the next expense hit you, hits you, you're in real trouble. Okay, you can believe that. And that's certainly going to ramp up anxiety, worry. Or, verse 8, you can think on things that are true, which is God loves me a bazillion times more than the birds of the air, which he cares for. A thousand times more than the flowers of the field, which he clothes in splendor. God loves me. I've been adopted into his family. He's my father. A father provides for his child. Even if it's not in this life and it's in the one to come, he promises to care for me that I'm eternally his. He bought me with the blood of Christ. You see the difference between the two? Very practically on the ground. Or perhaps this example might hit others closer to home. Maybe you experience anxiety with respect to your children. Are they going to be safe? The next time I go to Target, are they going to get snatched up by someone in the parking lot? You're freaking out, you know, when you go just to buy a gallon of milk. Or maybe it's the bigger picture. Are my kids going to turn out well? Are they going to, you know, be able to run the course and, and turn out well-rounded? And, and I certainly hope that they know and love Jesus. And, and as you begin to think about those things, they begin to consume you. You begin to, to find yourself consumed with worry, with anxiety. And so you can think on things that are antagonistic to verse 8, which is, I've got to white-knuckle this thing. If, if I don't attempt to sit on the throne of all of this, it's all going to turn out horrifically bad. God can't really be trusted. I've got, I, he can function as the sovereign in all other areas of life, but I've got to be the sovereign as it pertains to my children. Or, verse 8, we can think on things that are true and pure and lovely, 
which is that God created that child in the very womb. He knit them together. He knows every one of their days. He loves that child far more than you do. You just get to be a steward of the kid. God owns that child. You get to play with him or her for a season. That's good theology. And if that child is going to experience salvation, it's going to be by our pleading with the Spirit of God to awaken him or her from spiritual death to life. We don't get to save anyone. And that changes the worry game, the anxiety game. Paul's idea is not that we think on true, honorable, lovely, pure things so that we can fill in more Sunday school blanks. That's just dumb. We'll see again in verse 9. Truth isn't meant to remain in the realm of intellectual assent. Truth is meant to work its way down into our hearts, the deepest recesses of our being. Truth is meant to compel us to be a people of action who put hands and feet to what we say we believe. Truth is meant to be a weapon that we wield in moments of sin and doubt. You see how being a people who fix our minds on the things of God impacts our experience of his nearness? Verse 9, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There it is. Christianity, it's not just a thinking faith. It's a learning faith. It's a receiving faith. It's a seeing faith. It's a hearing faith. You can think about a lot of things without internalizing anything. Trust me, I'm a champion at this. Which is why you can hear questions like, how have you experienced the gospel in your life in recent history? And you can go, yeah, I don't know. Or how do you view God differently today than you did a year ago? And you go, man, that's a, that's a good question. No clue. We're really good, many of us, at cramming for the test. Right? It's not that we're not sitting under the, the preaching and teaching of the truth of God's words rooted in the gospel. It's not that many of us don't share a living room with other people in the context of community groups and are wrestling with those types of, of questions. But we live in a society where it's really easy to think about things in the moment and never internalize them. That's why you can cram for a test thinking about the right answers and you can make an A on that test and a week later fail to remember any of the answers. When I was pursuing my undergrad in public relations, this is scary. I had two roommates who resented me every time an exam came around because they would study for a, a good solid week, several hours a day committed to studying. And I would wake up about four hours before the test and cram it all into my head with, with a weird photographic memory that I have and would go in, make an A on that test. Those guys would make B's and C's. And then we would walk away. And if you tested me on that very information a week later, no clue. I don't know anything I just learned. And so I can tell you a few principles that relate to public relations, but not many. Which is really scary. Because I have a degree from an accredited university. <laughs> Probably be helpful to tell you that as I pursued a master in biblical studies, um, that, that was reoriented. I didn't cram for that test. That was a little bit more internalized. <laughs> the, the reality is this. Thinking doesn't always mean learning. Paul says it's not just about thinking. It's about thinking that becomes internalized. Thinking that's received. Thinking that's learned. It becomes a part of you. It impacts you in those moments where sin and doubt rear their ugly heads. 
It's truth that you can take with you on the battlefield. You no longer need Google in the moment to jostle your mind about that truth. It's within you. It's something that, according to verse 9, you can now practice as you go. You could say it this way. Christianity is not a whiteboard worldview, something that can remain in the confines of the classroom. It's a worldview that must be lived out in the context of the everyday, which is why Paul says, it's not just that I've taught you some things like a professor, He says, you've seen, you've heard. My life is an example of my teaching. When I was a kid, it's a really lame example to give. When I was a kid, I used to spend the summers with my Meemaw and Pop. Like Sheldon Cooper, I had a Meemaw. And uh, my Meemaw, by necessity, would take me to the grocery store with her. And I remember sitting in the, the, the little basket on the front, legs dangling. Uh, And we would ride around and... My Meemaw was a champion at beating the system as it pertained to finding the greatest deals that existed in all the universe pertaining groceries. And so I would watch her. She would pull two cans of peanut butter off of the shelf, and she would look at them, and I would go, those look like the exact same thing to me, just two different labels. And she would study them. And she would study the the label, the pricing label underneath. She would look at it by the ounce And then she would set one of them down and hang on to the other one, but she wasn't done yet. Then she would pick up different sizes of that brand because sometimes the better deal was in buying uh, the the bigger jar of peanut butter and other times there was a a two-for-one or some sort of deal going on with a smaller jar of peanut butter. And so every excursion was different from the one before it. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was instilling things in me that, that now, oddly, I really like grocery shopping. It's, it's like a battle of wits with whoever created the pricing of those items. And, and I find myself doing what she did when I was a kid. She could have easily written a book on uh, how to beat the pricing war, you know, against all uh, grocery store owners and, and this, that, and the other. And I could have read that book, and it probably would have been helpful, but there's something very different about watching her sit with those two jars of peanut butter and studying them, and asking her questions, and seeing, you know, why'd you put that one down? Why'd you hold on to this one? And now all of a sudden, it's instilled in me, it's ingrained in me, and, and I'm saving my family money in droves every time I go to the grocery store, thanks to Meemaw. The Christian life, according to the Apostle Paul, is a life lived in the aisles, so to speak. It's a life lived in community. It's one in which it's okay to ask questions of other believers when you don't know the answers. How how do you deal with this particular issue? Has anyone ever experienced this challenge or, or that challenge? I don't understand this about the Bible. Can someone help me out? It's a life lived with open eyes and perked ears to learn from fellow image bearers and, and followers of Jesus. That there's much that every one of us in this room can learn from others in this very room. And ultimately, Paul says, as you're internalizing, as you're seeing the Christian life lived out by others, practice those things yourself. Go to the quote-unquote grocery store and see what happens. Step out of the classroom and see what happens. There's grace in those moments when you fall on your face. In fact, according to verse 9, the God of peace will be with you every step of the way. You'll find that not only is the peace of God more manifest in your life, but you'll also experience in a very 
real way, the nearness of God himself through it all. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian in in this room, I've written down some questions for you because this particular passage is very application-driven, and so I think it would be very easy to miss some of these things. So as you prepare to take communion, if you're a Christian, let me throw out some questions to you. Are you missing out on the peace of God? Are you missing out on the presence of the God of peace? Maybe both. What what does repentance look like for you as you look at verses 4 through 9? Is God calling you to believe in those moments of anxiety that lesser things are actually lesser things? Is God calling you to react with gentleness toward others in those moments of worry? Is God calling you to spend your time not worrying about things that you can't control, but more time drawing near to the throne of grace in prayer in those moments? Perhaps God's calling you to come up with a battle plan for practically awakening your mind for his glory. So maybe repentance is this. I'm going to brew a good pot of coffee every morning and sit at the breakfast table with a few verses of scripture, and I'm going to start that tomorrow. Or maybe it's I'm going to fight to be more present in the context of the church gathered because opening the scriptures with God's people awakens my mind in very God-glorifying ways. It's God convicting you of the fact that you have good confessional theology, perhaps, that never gets applied. Maybe to repent is to stop cramming for the test and to slow down and, and sit with questions like, how have I experienced the power of the gospel in my life recently? Or how do I view God differently today than I did a year ago? Maybe repentance is determining to press further in, into community. Maybe you need to surround yourself with a few memaws in the faith. And that's not just an age thing, by the way. Um, that, that runs the gamut. It, it might simply be a more purposeful relationship with people in your very own community group or pressing into the context of a community group, seeing what God might do through that. There are a lot of possibilities with a passage like this one as to what a step toward God might look like. And if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you find your heart longing for the promises that you see in verses 7 and, and 9. That, that you can actually know the peace of God and the God of peace, but only through union with Christ, who made peace by the blood of his cross. That he lived the life you could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him, and he was punished in our place. So my prayer for you is, may the Spirit of God bust down the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank. May he head for the castle, may he make a beeline for the throne and promptly execute you so that Jesus can take his rightful place as king. So that when anxiety comes knocking tomorrow, you don't have to go, all right, self, let's fix this Thanks anxiety problem. But rather, if you have any questions you about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S. P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.